If you have a Bible this morning, I want you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. This is our communion Sunday, and I want to take our text from this. Usually when we talk about communion, we talk about one of two things, either the healing and health, by his stripes we were healed, and he bore our diseases in his body, and by his stripes we were healed, or else we talk about our relationship with him and with each other, because the communion table has that message. And so I have chosen today to use 1 Corinthians 11. I read this most of the time when we do take communion. And I want to begin in verse 17. And I want to title the message today, The Virus in the Church. The Virus in the Church, which is heresy. Now, we don't have that problem, and you don't have that problem. That's what we all think when we hear about heresy, because we use heresy as a word for those, for other people. But heresy is as a virus, and I'll try to show you that today. A virus is common to all of us. We're used to the word virus. We are warned about various kinds of viruses, whether it's the swine flu or the West Nile or, or worse, and all colds and flus and things that are caused by viruses, and we're warned how to deal with that because a virus weakens something. When a virus comes into something, a body, a human body or a body of believers, when a virus is loosed in that system, it weakens it. It makes it less than it's supposed to be. There is a decline in what ought to be. When a person has a viral infection, they don't function as well as they do when they're feeling good. You're just less than you normally are. You can't do what you used to do until you get better. And I think that in the church, I do believe the more I read this, that's why I got the title, the more I read this, I realized that there is a spiritual virus that through the ages and centuries has been released into the church, that there are many people who carry a virus, this spiritual virus, and they become contagious because people can get it from them. And so it's for us to deal with it and see what we can do about it. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17, Paul is speaking and he says, Now in this I declare unto you, I praise you not that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. I thought coming together was always good. When we all get, you know that. Talking to the Corinthian church, he said, now when you all come together like you're supposed to, it really doesn't turn out well and it's not good. I don't praise you for that. Let's go on and see what he says. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies. You see the relationship between divisions and heresies? Heresies are the reason for divisions. Division is separation. For there must also be heresies among you that they which are approved may be manifest among you. Now, when you come together into one place, he said, this is not to, for the Lord's supper because when you all come together, everybody that brings their own meal sets down and eats it when they get ready, when they want to, and don't really take into account that we're a part of a bigger body. 
we just ignore everybody else or what everybody else is doing. I don't need you. I've got a way to do it. And it works for me. And so we just sort of separate ourselves and without any concern for others. He said, so I don't praise you for all of this. He said, if you're hungry, go home and eat. You have houses to eat in. He said that in verse 22. And then it's strange for a communion message to come out of this. He says, now, in context of what I just said about an indifference to each other, having differing opinions and other people do, or not wanting to be around people because I don't like to hear what they say and they're always yapping about something and I, I, just, you know, I don't sit beside them, you know, all of that. He said, this is what the Lord showed me. Not to get this from Luke and Matthew and others. He said, the Lord gave me this by a special revelation, 1 Corinthians 11, that, that on the night the Lord was betrayed, he took bread. And when he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and he said, take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he said, and when he given thanks, he break it and he did that. Now verse 25, he said, after the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Then he said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. Now, isn't that interesting in context of people having a problem that they're not being praised for their coming together for this? Because they're not acting like Christians ought to act as God wanted Christians to act. But Christians tend to act any way they want to. There's a lot of rebels and independents in the church today that nobody's going to tell you what to do, especially as you get older. People have a way they want to do it, and this is the way we've done it, this is the way we're always going to do it, and we're not going to change. That's a virus. Those are the very roots of heresy. Nobody is a law unto himself. No man has it all. In fact, we're not supposed to try to have it all. We're supposed to follow the one who does have it all. Our obligation is not to form something and to make up something, but it's to follow something and find out how to do that. That's why we come together. And Paul will speak of this in just a minute about, we're not here because of me. We're not here because of you. We're here because of Jesus. And we want to know exactly how we together ought to serve him. What's right in his eyes about what we're doing? What's right in his eyes about worship or singing or reading or studying or praying or just coming together to fellowship? How do we do this right? So we come together to find out. Wouldn't that be a good reason to put teachers in the church? Somebody to give us information that makes our lives better than they should be. But information is nothing if you don't yield to it. It's when you don't yield to it that you become heretical because, well, I don't see it that way. I don't see it that way. That's a heretic. And that becomes a virus because that person is going to spread that same opinion, and it's what heresy refers to. It's a choosing. You begin to spread that opinion to other people. Next thing you know, you're forming a little group to disagree with what's being taught, and eventually you're going to separate yourself, division, from the church. And that's a virus. It's happened for centuries we didn't get Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Church of God, Episcopalians, and all the hundred other. We didn't get all of that because we all agreed. We got that because somebody had a different view of how it ought to be. Somebody could share that view and somebody followed it. 
It's fragmented the church for centuries. And everybody wants to promote their system and promote their way because, well, they just do. But heresies, heresies also means sect, like the Pharisees' sect. It doesn't have to be bad. It can just refer to a particular group who hold a different opinion. But anytime those opinions begin to divide the church and separate the church and cause confusion and disunion, that heresy becomes not only heretical, but it becomes divisive and seditious. And people begin to change. And Let me show you a few ways how the Bible describes heresy. It doesn't say the word heresy, but these are little examples. He said, there are those who have a form of godliness, but they what? They deny the power of it. That's heresy. That's heretical. Or there are those who in Paul's day in this 2 Corinthians 11, they preached another Jesus. The Jesus they preached was an updated, modernized version of Jesus. He doesn't do what he used to do. We don't need that anymore. What he's doing today is then whatever they say. Or there's that verse we all know in 1 Timothy chapter 4, in the last day there shall be a departure from the faith, not from religion. Religious people will always gather. They'll find somebody or something they like, and they will gather to it, whether they believe all the components of that religion or not, but they will find something that they like. But the Bible said they will depart from the faith, the faith, not various kinds of faith, one faith, one God, one spirit, one church. And they won't like it that way, so man reinterprets what God says so that he can do it his way. In fact, we're told it in the last days that there will be many people who will seek out men who will have different views, and they will follow that that they don't want to do it the way that the Bible says it because this would cost you everything. Your life's going to radically change. People are going to think you're a little strange, a little weird. And so they want to refine that because the big spirit today in the church is comfort and happiness. Make them comfortable, make them happy, they'll come back and you have a big time. They may not go to heaven, but they have a big time. But that's not what God meant when he called his people, he called it the church when he brings his assembly together. That's not what he had in mind, making you happy and comfortable. In fact, so much of what he says makes us uncomfortable because we've got used to error. We've got used to things that aren't right. And when God begins to locate us and somebody tells us what is right without fear of whether they'll be fired after the service or not, I've lost my fear of y'all firing me. If you fire, that's fine. But... All I have to do is give an account to God for speaking the truth. Somebody said, well, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes. Well, I wouldn't want to be in yours either if you don't receive it. <laughs> what judgment's worse, knowing and rejecting or knowing and not saying? Let's look at some things today about heresy and this virus. Let me tell you, first of all, how much God hates division. What God joins together it's not intended to be separated. Now, in what context did you hear that in the Bible? 
what God has joined together, let no man divide it. Marriage, Matthew 19, verse 6. Jesus is speaking of the coming together of a man and a woman by mutual consent to be joined together by a covenant as husband and wife for the purpose of living together happily in love, establishing a home, raising children to be godly seed unto God. Now, that's God's way of doing it. And when people do that today, they take a vow in front of God and these witnesses to indicate that this is where my heart is. I want to do this. I'm going to love this woman. I'm going to love this man. And yet, half of them get talked out of so-called vows that they took. Half of them terminate those vows, terminate their marriage, and live irritable the rest of their life. Let me tell you about divorce. Malachi 2.16, God said he hates divorce. Divorce is never God's fault. God has a way, listen to me, God has a way that two people can live together harmoniously, lovingly, even 50 years. God has a way that this can happen. Now, whether people want to receive it or not, that's their business. That's your choice. But when you don't choose, listen to me, all of you. You young folks, listen. See, y'all not married yet. Hang in there. <laughs> when you don't choose God's way, you become heretical in the other choice. It becomes a virus which, listen to me, it leads you away from all the good that God has. There may be some good in your life because you're working on some other things, but when you turn away from God's way, a door is open to something that infects you, and you become a carrier or a host, one who carries about a virus. And you're able to spread that to others because I have found that on the subject of marriage and divorce, and especially remarriage, that people's arguments bypass the word and go to opinions. What I do, now, do you really, well, don't you think? Well, now, if he's going to do that, I'm not, you think I'm supposed to, and here they go. They say, well, what does the Bible say? Oh, no. See, you're becoming heretical in all these different views. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. God didn't send me here to establish some new way of thinking. But to have my mind renewed so that I can think like him. And if he said this is the way to walk in, fine. If I'm not supposed to divorce, then God help me before I ever tie that knot, jump the broom. God help me to know that who I'm hooking up with, I'm willing to stay hooked forever. If I'm not, God open my eyes. Because there's far too many people in this church that have opinions and have views about what they would do or what they think something ought to be without really knowing is that in accordance with the Bible. If it's not, it's heretical. When you spread it, you become a heretic. Turn to Titus for just a brief, brief moment. Titus chapter 3 and verse 10. Now, we'll come back to 1 Corinthians 11. But in Titus chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul writes this. Let me get verse 9 because that's where it starts. But foolish and unlearned questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law 
for they are unprofitable and they're vain. Now, verse 10, a man that is a heretic, a man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition, reject him, shun him, avoid him. Does your Bible say that? If a man is a heretic, his views and his opinions are not in harmony with the word. Or he in the church is trying to turn people away from what the preacher is preaching and what the preacher is saying to give them another view of things. If you want to do that, you need to go to a church that holds your views. In verse 11, he said, Knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. While you're back there, go back the other way to Galatians and stop off in chapter 5. There's a good pullover spot there. You need to pull over there and, and, and take a break in Galatians chapter 5. It won't be much of a break, but it'll be a challenge. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 20. Well, let me get verse 19 because it's called a work of the flesh. Does your Bible say that? A work of the flesh, not the spirit. Not something that God has given, but something that man has come up with. Listen to the things that man comes up with. It says, the works of the flesh are made known. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, nastiness, oh, I'm sorry, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, and then look at these because these go into the church. This is the virus. Variants, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, and heresies. Five of those things had to do with things that divide. And that's why God goes on to say at the end of verse 22, in beings murdered and drunken and so forth, he said, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me ask you a question. Go back to 1 Corinthians 11. Let me ask you a question. How serious then is heresy? How serious then is heretical holdings and heretical ideas? How serious is the person in the church who whispers and murmurs to try to draw away disciples after themselves or to try to convince people they know more than the preacher? I'm not saying they don't. But God didn't put us together to see who can outguess and outdo the other one. You remember what Paul said once? Well, he said in chapter 1 of Galatians in verse 8 and 9, how arrogant Paul must have been. He says, if anybody comes to you and preaches anything differently than I have preached to you, let him be cursed. Oh, so I guess you know everything. That's the way people dismiss their need to receive what you say because everybody likes to know more than everybody else. Oh, I guess everybody just has to listen to what you say. Oh, I guess you know everything. Oh, I guess we're not allowed to have a mind of our own. Oh, you are. Boy, you are. But he said, like he said in Romans chapter 14, hast thou faith? Have it to yourself. Get along with God. Work it out. Ask him the questions you're, you're asking or you're trying to tell others. Is it right? Is it true? How do I know? Show me in the Word. I don't need to be talking about it. I don't know about all that stuff he taught. Go find out for yourself. Keep your mouth shut. Put a watch over my mouth, the psalmist said, and guard the door of my lips lest I sin against thee. Christians sin more with their mouth 
and their opinions and their ideas with their gossip and their tail bearings. Christians sin more that way than probably any other way. It's just hard to keep that mouth shut and find out for yourself what you really believe. And if you're wrong, admit it and line up. Now, there's a way to deal with the preacher if, if he's wrong. You know that. You go and talk to him. If you can talk to somebody and you got the truth better than somebody else and they receive it, then you have gained your brother. But this gossip, now I'm not after anybody this morning, trust me. I'm not hearing something. In the church today, this gossip and talking and berating and putting down and criticizing each other and this one and that one, God never gave us that to do. That is not a gift. Some people think that discerning of spirits is what they have because they can see all the wrong in everybody else. That's not what he's talking about. But in Galatians 5, again, in verse 20, he said that one of the things that will keep you out of the kingdom is heresies. You want to make real sure, all of you that are here this morning, those of you that are listening wherever you are, you want to make sure that what you're believing is right. Because a little leaven, a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. And then what good is the lump if it's leavened? It looks good. It sounds good. It has a form of godliness, but it's dead. There is a way that seems right. Man puts it together. This has got to be good. And he does it his way and outlines it his way and has ordered his way. And it seems right. But God said the end of that way is death. We take all that for granted in the church as though, well, we're all going the same place anyway. And what difference does it make what church you belong to? And that's the voice of nonsense, because it does matter. It does matter. Now, when is a church healthy? When is a church healthy? When is a church healthy? When are the members of that church healthy? When do things really happen and people really are receiving what God has promised? When is a church healthy? When it's in one accord. Turn to Acts. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 11. Acts Chapter 2, that verse that is so dreaded by so many because it mentions tongues in there somewhere, but we're not there yet. Verse 1 of Acts 2. On the day of Pentecost, they had come together, was fully come. They were all with one accord in one place. One accord means unity. It's oneness. Similar minds, similar thinking, similar ideas, similar ways. We're all together headed in the same direction. We're different people. We have different backgrounds. We have different likes and dislikes. But when it comes to God and the gospel, we're together. They were. And when they were together that way, God blessed them. In fact, when the church was healthy, God kept adding to it people, 3,000, 5,000. He just kept adding people as long as it stayed healthy. And you read in the book of Acts and following, when they started fussing and fighting, you don't hear anymore about this great numbers being added to it because it's infected. 
The people aren't going to do and have and see what they should have. That early church, when they first started, boy, miracles were common. I mean, there was power. Nobody lacked. Everybody cared about everybody else in chapter 2 and the last part of that chapter, 44 through 47, they had all things in common. They fellowshiped all the time. They broke bread together. They didn't care who was rich, who was poor, who was black, white, green, yellow, or gray. They just got together and enjoyed each other because they had the same common experience, and it was salvation in Jesus Christ. And they just loved that. They wanted more to experience that, so that's what they concentrated on. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul said this in verse 27. He said, only let your manner of life be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Did you know that there is a manner of life that is after the gospel? There is a way the gospel says live this way. Listen to this. Only let your manner of life be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else I be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind Striving together for the faith of the gospel. What if we were like that? What if any church group was like that? What if it was no more just viewed as a Sunday thing or the Wednesday or whatever day people meet? What if it was more than just a religious meeting? Well, you know, I'm obligated to go in this part of the ritual, part of the routine, and, you know, decent people do this. What if it was more than that? What if it was a desire, a real passion, a real urge that you had to do this, to get involved and to learn and to rejoice and enjoy and not endure? What if it was like that? Because you see, through the years, this virus has affected, it's weakened the church. It's settled the church down. It's almost become a spectator sport. You know, the big building, the fancy preacher and and all the fancy trimmings and the advertisements and the book writing and the popularity and I wouldn't say music, but all the things that go with them and their church. And people have just learned to come, fold their arms and watch the show and get entertained and then go out and see whether they like it or not. And if you like it, you'll come back. I don't think God ever intended for us to be like that. He intended for us to be a body to think alike, to be alike, to see the same thing, same way, to have in our hearts a desire to do one thing, and that's serve the Lord. I think that's what he intended. And he also said in that same book of Philippians, this, he said, fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. This was the big numbers for the church of all the things that we need and all the things that we can do, no need's going to get met, and nothing is going to happen until we decide to lay aside our differences and our views and come together and take God at his word. Nothing's going to happen. And he gives us this book of 1 Corinthians to show us how that's going to be. You see, God wants us to care. He wants us to be our brother's keeper. I think we started this year talking like that. God wants us to know that while I have a physical family somewhere, well, I don't anymore. They're all gone. But while I have a family, my true family is you. 
Remember the disciples said once to Jesus, they said they were trying to get him to leave because they said, well, he's mad. He, you know, he's beside himself. And he said, Master, your mother and your, your brothers are waiting for you out here. And you know what he said in Mark's gospel? He said, who is my mother? Who is my brother but those who are seeking after God? This is who he relates to. God doesn't relate to religion. He says to a lot of people and will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. But, Lord, we did miracles. We knocked on doors. We'd... But he said, I never knew you. How can this be? Well, maybe motivation is a good answer. Somebody might have told you. Somebody heretically informs you in your mind. The only thing we're supposed to do is go to church, give money, knock on doors, and win souls to Christ. I would do a series on winning souls to Christ, but it would be pretty tough because the question is, when is a soul won? When he says, I do, I will? Because how many have said that and Jesus said to them, I never knew you. But, Lord, we said we did. I, I didn't know. I don't know you. So winning a person to Christ is not just getting them to say, I want to be saved. Anybody can say that. Let me say this. When a man comes to Jesus, I don't care who he is, who she is, how bad you were, I can't think of anybody that was worse than I was. I mean, the way I grew up and my attitude, I mean, is vile. And yet, God was willing to save me. Now, not because I was a school teacher and a basketball coach and cool. I wasn't. But he saved me because he wanted to. One day, my heart got broke. I began to see my sin as I had never seen it before. I saw my destiny as I had never seen it before and where I was headed like I'd never seen it before, and it was frightening to me. I began to weep and cry. My heart was broken because of the ugliness of my life before God. And in that moment, all those parties I went to and all those jokes I to and all the crazy things that I did, none of that was funny anymore. All the wrong things you did with the wrong people, none of that was funny anymore. It was death. And the result of me doing it my way was death from a just and fair God. He offered me the right way to go, and I said, you know, I don't think I'm ready for that. I'm about 85, kind of slow, and all this big sack of oats I got have been sown, and I'm down to just nothing, and I'll come and get ready to go to heaven. You don't get accepted that way. How many of you know you can only come when he calls you? If he doesn't call you, you can't come. You can go forward, but you didn't come to the Lord. You're miserable in your life. You're miserable with your mistakes. You're miserable with all the wrong things you've done and said to other people. And you want some relief from that. That's not why you come to the Lord, to get relief. You come to the Lord because you're a sinner and because you need to be saved. You've been offending Christ your whole life. And you want to get right with the Lord and be forgiven of your sins, whether you get healed or delivered or straightened out or not. I want to be saved. I've said to my Children growing up, I don't care if you're ugly, pretty, thin, or a little too large. You know what I mean. I just want you to be saved. Because you can't do better in this life 
than that. But you'll never be saved because you go to church. You're not saved because you participate. You're saved because you repent and you turn away from your sins and you turn to Christ and you give him everything. Now, when you do that, it's expected of you to take his yoke upon you and learn of him and to walk in his way. The example that he left us to live, this is what he wants us to do. He wants us to fit in together. And isn't it amazing how God can take somebody like me or somebody like James here and put us together in the same group? Man, James said. <laughs> Why would he put me in here with y'all? If you're from up north, you folks. Why would he put us together? Look at who he brought in here. As I've said before, most people in here moved here from somewhere else. Very few of us are from here. This is kind of like a foreign country. We've had to learn the language. Some of you that came from other parts of the other states had to learn how to, how to interpret Kentucky talk. Y'all doing all right? <laughs> and we say, yite, that just means, are you all right, yite? And you have to learn how to fit in with that. It's just, he brings us here for a common reason to put us together put us together to make this thing a habitation of God in the spirit, as he said in Ephesians 2, to open my eyes to see that you are not only my brother, but you have value, not only to God, but to me, to esteem my brother as better than I am, to look up and sit down, to get away from this Isaiah 65, holier than thou stuff but to come with the idea that I'm one little part in a big piece. And God helped me to do my little part right. And the only way I can do that is to know how it works and what I'm supposed to do. And teach me thy ways, O Lord, that what? I may walk in thy truth. Now, when is a church unhealthy? A church is unhealthy when there's a viral infection in it. Now go to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let me show you what this virus is, this heretical problem is. Let's begin in verse 3. Look how good it was. First of all, I want you to notice this morning how good it was at the Corinthian church. Wouldn't you like to be in this church? Let's see what it said. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. I'm impressed. The Apostle Paul, who started this church, was a pioneer of this church. Has to travel a lot. He stays in touch. He would write them and send people back to check on them, come back and tell him. I thank God for the grace that God has given you, for the favor that God has shown you. You not only are enriched by him and knowledge and things, he's taught you a lot of things, but he said you come behind in no gift. 
Now, this book has a lot to say about gifts, whether they be the gifts of the Spirit or in Ephesians, the same authors talks about gifts as of ministries. And they obviously had all of them there. They had apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists. One church had all of those manifest present. They were there. I mean, there are people who were in tune and in touch with God and could bring a word from God to the congregation. Have you ever been in this church? I've never been in one like that. They had all the gifts operating there. He spoke about them in 1 Corinthians 12, all these particular gifts. They were all there in that church. He defined them and told about them. They were present and active in that church. But there was something wrong with that church. There was something not right about that church because those gifts were limited. And the power that God had for that church was hindered. And you say, well, why? Because we say amongst ourselves, well, we read about all this power and all these. Why doesn't God do things like that now? Well, they could have said the same thing. We've got apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. We've got gifts of healings, and we've got gifts of miracles, and, and we've got all these power gifts here. And yet we've got people that are sick and people that are dying and, and people whose prayers aren't getting answered and things aren't working right. Uh, how can that be in a church like this? I think he said, right after our communion verses I read a while ago, he said, for this cause, many, not a few, in that church, he said, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and some sleep. Some have died. They shouldn't have died. I don't think they should have been sick. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said it that way. The reason people are sickly and dying and are not well in your church is because. Well, I want to know what the because is. I don't want that to be in my life. I want to be well. I want to be well all the days of my life. I don't know how many days are in my life. I'm on the downside of it now. But boy, it's been a good ride. But I want to live it right. I want to be blessed all the days of my life. I'll probably make it into my 90s, maybe to 100. And if it get real rowdy, I'll get make it 115, be the oldest living man in the world. <laughs> now, having said that, having said that, why aren't we seeing this stuff we read about that people are now just taking for granted. Why don't we see things happening? Well, let's go on. First Corinthians. After he says all the good things, look at verse 10. Now, now he said, I beseech you, brethren, I want to bring you a message of comfort and patience and, and hope here. You know what he said? I'm not coming to you to try to make you happy and make you like me. The people that don't like me tell you that my speech is contemptible. And my bodily presence is weak. I'm not a very big, active, athletic-looking soul. But he said, here's what I come to tell you at Corinth. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I beseech you that you all speak the same things and that there be no divisions, schisms among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, perfectly joined together, 
Was that word we use in Ephesians 4? When God gave to the church apostles, prophets, and remember that, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and then he said, for the perfecting of the saints. Paul, speaking of ministry, which this Corinthian church had, he said, this is what they do. This is what ministry does. They don't make a name for themselves. They don't start churches and become famous. They pour out their lives like a hose with water. They are to be used of God to make his people the way they're supposed to be. That's what he said. Now, he said concerning all of this in 1 Corinthians about perfectly joined together in our word in Ephesians 4, ministry is come together to take things that are out of order, things that have been trained to be out of order, me and you, we have warped ideas and warped views. You put a Baptist and a Methodist and a Presbyterian in the same room with a heart for God, and you right away realize that there's a problem. They don't agree with each other. They have different views. They have different opinions because they were taught that way. They were formed that way. And God says now, I want you to lay all your views and your opinions and all your great accomplishments. I want you to lay them on the offer and offer them to God. And I want you to open up your mind to the word of God so that you can be renewed. So that you can think like God. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Because if the same mind that was in Christ is in Thomas and it's in me, me and him are going to think alike. We're different people. We walk different ways through life and do different things. But we got the same experience the same mind drawing us in the same direction together. Ministry has to do that. Today we send the pulpit committee out to find us a preacher that we like. We like one that doesn't preach long. How long have I been? I don't know. We get us one that preaches just a little time and makes us feel good about being here and, and softens a blow. And that's what we want. That's not what ministry is designed to do. It's to take you that are here by choice. How many of you were forced in here at gunpoint? He brings you in here, chose you just like you were, not heads, pastors, nightmares, and he made you a candidate to hear his word. And he said, this word is going to do something. Ephesians 5, how's he going to cleanse his church? Oh, you all know that the washing of water by the word of God. Did Jesus mean that in John 15, 3? And he said, now you're clean through the word that I have spoken to you. Is that what Isaiah meant when he said, if they don't speak according to this word, they have no light. And Jesus said about those without light, they'd be blind leaders of the blind. That's how all these denominations got started. That's how man formed churches and people liked the idea. They didn't know what the Bible said. They knew one little aspect of it, but they just followed it. And when somebody says something that's different than what they just assumed was right, they begin to be offended by the preacher. I'm sure Paul offended these folks. He said, you know, you got a real healthy bunch of people here. You got some really good folks here. But he said, a whole bunch of you have fallen short of what God wants. In fact, your church is not a haven of rest. The sick aren't being healed. The desperate aren't being helped. 
because there's a virus in your church. There's a virus in Christianity today. It's been spread by people that are carrying that virus. And he said, I want you to be perfectly joined together. I want you to do things my way. I want you to give up all of your ways. And I want you to let go of all those things that kept you divisive for so many years with other people, those things that made you critical of other people all those years. I want you to give all that up. I want you to let go of all of that because I don't want you to be like that. Take, for example, marriage again. We like to talk about marriage. I'm glad we're all glad we did. I am. But one of the things that says in a marriage, I didn't pick this out because there's nothing about men, but it, there is a little something about women, and it's not intended to be ugly, just accurate. How many you know that a woman who, I'm just going to say, that runs her mouth all the time, won't hush, it makes a man feel like he likes to live up in the attic? Proverbs 19:13 it says, and the contentions... The contentions of a wife are a continual dropping, like a brain. The contentions, the irritable, constant chatter about this and that, my feelings, my way, it's not right, I'm tired of that. And her constant releasing of her feelings, contentions like that are just like a dropping rain. Well, what's she supposed to do? Well, what does the Bible say she's supposed to do? Why are you so quiet all of a sudden? What the Bible says we're supposed to do with all of our hurt feelings and abused feelings. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to choose sides. Hit her in the mouth. No. No. You know what it says to do? I cast all my cares upon you. You take it to the Lord. You don't take it to the phone. You don't tweet it. You don't thumb talk it. You don't want people to agree with you. You don't want healing. You want sympathy when you do that. Y'all come rub on my back. I mean, if y'all you have been, you poor soul, you're messing up real bad here. See, because what you're doing isn't what God was teaching you to do with it. If any woman has a husband, for example, in 1 Peter Chapter 3 and verse 1, if any woman has a husband which does not obey the word, he may without a word be one when he beholds the chaste conversation of his wife coupled with fear. He begins to see how she acts and the way she does, and she quits all that other stuff. And next thing you know, God uses her to save him. Oh, I, you, if he, I'll tell you one thing. And then, see, that keeps us from being the way we ought to be. That'll also keep you out of heaven acting like that because it's heretical. You're choosing to do it your way, see it your way, and push aside God's way. And you carry that same virus to other people, and you want a little group in which you all agree so you can sit around and talk about your problems, talk about your feelings. You take a brother who's been offended in a church. Y'all ever heard of church problems? You ever heard of a church split? Pretty rough. I've been in one of them. Here's something, just a little verse of Scripture in Proverbs also, in Proverbs 18 and verse 19. It says that a brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. 
Now, a strong city takes a lot of planning. How are we going to get in there? Well, boy, they're fortified. You can't get in there. The Bible says that a brother offended. How many marriages have terminated because the offense, the talk, went so far as to build a wall? Irreconcilable, they call it today. Can't be fixed. Not even God could fix it. Let me tell you something. God could have kept it from ever happening if you had kept your vows. What I just said to you is true. We're not here to do something our way. I'm not here to propagate an opinion. I've had to lay myself on an altar as much as you have to say, Lord, I had this all wrong. I see it's your way now, and I want to do it your way. Go back to 1 Corinthians again. 1 Corinthians 1. Look at verse 13. Let me read verse 11. It has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the household of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now, contentions, we're talking about that, about a woman. Arguing, strife, fussing, or fussing, irritableness, just having it on your sleeve, you know, that chip on your shoulder, and letting it out. Now, Paul said, now, I've heard this about you. You know what? I think I believe it. In fact, it was those of the household of Chloe who informed me. He said that there are contentions among you. Now, this I say, verse 12, that every one of you says, well, I'm a Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Met. I'm, I'm of Cephas or Peter, and I'm of Christ. Look what he said in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And he goes on in this, the rest of this chapter, and in chapter 2, if you read it in this context, he goes on beginning to say, look, we're human beings. We're just men. God didn't put gifts in the church as leaders who are exceptional apart from Christ. I don't care how good a speaker you are, how educated and all of that stuff you are, you are nothing without God's anointing because all you do is entertain people. But the anointing breaks the yoke. The anointing makes a difference in your life and the way you leave the building and the way you think and the way you start dealing with yourself. That's what an anointing does. If you don't have that, all you have is something besides that. And the church just grows and becomes like that. We'll never change. We'll not accept change. Not going to do it. This is how we do it. We kind of like this way, and, you know, this is the way we're going to do it. Like one preacher said on the radio, the biggest church I've ever heard of around here, he said, well, you may have that experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but don't have it here. Now, that's heresy. To me, that is heretical. Because you're saying, I don't care what God said and what he says to us. You may have to wrestle with that a while. You're not a heretic when you're growing and learning. It's when you say, ah, no, no, uh-uh, I'm out of here. Because I know what that's just trouble. All that is is trouble. Is that what God called it? No. Well, that's what you call it. Folks, there's not two messages in the Bible. There's not a Paul and Apollos and a Peter and then some. There's not three or four different messages, and they're all equal. There's only one. There's only one church, one faith, 
one Lord, one Christ, one message, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's all there is. God didn't call us to start a new church with a new invention of ideas that we have. He told us to learn the ways of the one that we're following and do things his way. Give it all up. Lay it all down. And by the time you think you did, you get caught in a line at Walmart, checkout line. And you can't get out behind you. Somebody's got a cart right in your belt. And then the lady in front of you's got three items that aren't marked. And the lady doesn't know what button to push on the machine. And you're fuming. Oh, you're sitting there going, oh. <laughs> now, on the inside, on the outside, you're trying to do that. But on the inside, the part that God sees, God says, we got a little work to do here. We got some work to do with you. You ever been there? No, I have. That's my testimony. I've been there. Thank God y'all didn't have to go there. But he goes from chapter 1, and after he gets through with chapter 2, a couple things, he says, look at chapter 2 and verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Who cares what I used to believe or what I used to do? And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration and power of the Spirit. That's what we need. Amen. This is the remedy for the virus. It's God's way. Get rid of your way. Get rid of your idea. Just submit yourself to the Lord. That's chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as babes in Christ. Uh, wouldn't that be a flattering thing? I'm here this morning to talk to this nursery. There's some diapers in here that need a little attention. Would that be offensive? I'm talking about what he said, not the diaper. Would that be offensive to you? Of course it would. Because we all like to think, you know, I've been in church 20 years 30. I've been in it 40. I mean, we'd like to think, oh, don't call me a baby because I go to church. That hadn't made you mature. Remember at the Walmart, after 40 years of Christ, at the Walmart, you were having a fit? 40 years, something left out. 40 years, you haven't done well. I go to church, I don't care where you went. Something needs to happen. So, he said, I couldn't speak unto you as unto spiritual men. I speak unto you as unto babes in Christ. Notice this. For you're carnal. That word means fleshly. I fed you with milk and not with meat. For so far, you're not able to bear it or receive it. Neither now can you receive it. Time out. Are we talking about a church with apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers? Are we? Is this man referring to that gathering of people, babes? I'm sure all of them weren't, but enough of them were that he had a hard time preaching to them. Hebrews 5. He said, I'd like to declare to you some revelation that God gave me, but he said, I can't give it to you because you're dull of hearing. That has to be pretty tough. But how are those people ever going to know that's how God sees them if they don't receive that? If he doesn't say that, they can't fix it. So he said it. Somebody's got to say it. 
So he said it. He said, I couldn't speak to you here. As unto spiritual peoples, he said, you're carnal. And here's what he means, verse 3. For you are carnal, for where there is among you envying and strife and divisions, you're carnal. Envying has to do with jealousy. Oh, brother, jealousy in the church, never been. But why didn't I get it? Well, why didn't they recognize me this morning? Well, I've been here longer than she has. Nobody ever gave me an envelope. Where'd you learn that? I learned that before I came to Christ. Well, why is it still in there? Because I ain't going to let go of it. Well, then you bordered on being a heretic. Envying and strife and contentions. See, the word strife is the same as the word contentions back in chapter 1, verse 11. Strife and contentions are the same thing. Let me ask you all something. What is the origin of strife? Where did it come from? Put your finger right there. Turn to James, if you can find James, back in the back, James chapter 3. And verse 14 through 16. But if you have bitter envying and jealousy and fighting and war of words in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. Quit acting like you're spiritual because you really aren't. For the kind of wisdom you have descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. Where's it come from? The devil. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Now, would I be telling you the truth this morning if I said the devil very clever and very subtly goes about like a roaring lion seeking where he can sow his virus and make us offensive to each other where we almost dread being around each other? Would the devil do that? Of course he does, and that's how it works. And unless we overcome all those temptations to act that way, then we'll be victimized by that virus and be weak and less than we should be all of our life. Or we can overcome and just say, you're not going to do I'm not going to act that way. I'm not going to believe it that way. I'm not going to see her like that. I'm not going to see him. I'm going to do it God's way. And overcome. Overcomers are made for heaven. Over come, but overcome. And then he said in James chapter 3 and verse 16, he said, if any man's work abide which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Now, if any man's work be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. So as by fire, know ye not that you're the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you. If the spirit of God dwells in you and he's the one that promotes the things you do, then what kind of things will you do? You'll do right things, the things that God shows you to do, the way you talk, the way you act, the reason you go to a meeting, the reason you sing. It's not just to mouth a bunch of words that these guys are trying to give you. Thy loving kindness, amazing. It's not just singing words. Your heart's got to get in it. God works on hearts until I don't care how I feel. It's a sacrifice. You give it because it's required. You do it as unto the Lord whether you feel like it or not. 
That's how he's changing us. And ministry has taught us that. And we're beginning to see that in this way, we're all going to think together. We're going to think alike. We're going to worship. We're going to pray. We're going to enjoy. We're going to do things together. We're going to give together. We're going to help others. We're going to do it all together. Because that's the message that God gives to us. That's the way it's supposed to be. It's when you draw back and say, well, I don't see where I have to do all that. There's a brother. He's not here anymore. I guess I could say praise the Lord. Some of you don't know what this is like. You've never done what I'm doing. But there was a brother once who was here who only came when he wanted to. He'd come to most Sunday meetings, but he rarely ever came to a special meeting. So I said to him once, I said, uh, we had a good meeting here last weekend when so-and-so was here. I didn't see you. He said, I only come to called assemblies. Well, I think we called that one. Didn't we tell the church we had a meeting? Did we say something about so-and-so's coming, going to be here for two or three days? You know, I don't see it that way. How do you pastor that? They're not here to hear what you have to say or to respond to what God says or at least think about what you said. They've already made up their mind. I don't know about that. I think, why did you come here? Why did you move wherever you came from to come down here? You could have that attitude back where you were. You don't need all that. If you're going to be here, if you want to come here, then fit in. If you don't agree with it, then don't come. Isn't that fair? Of course it is. But if you go back to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19 he said, you know, there must be heresies among you. There are going to be people that are going to challenge what you believe differently than what you heard. There's going to be people that are going to tell you what somebody else said about something and why you don't have to believe it the way you heard it. You're always going to hear that. There's always somebody that wants you to know that they know more than whoever said anything. They have a little way of getting that message across. And we're all going to hear that at some point in our Christian life. For there must be stuff like that among you. Didn't he say that in verse 19? For there must be heresies among you. Why? For this is how the ones that are approved are going to prove themselves. It's not that they disagree with the whispering that they heard. Because whispers separate chief friends, Proverbs says. But when he hears something that he doesn't agree with, as somebody said, whether it's about marriage or about taking an oath or whatever, you've never heard that before. It's not like that's wrong, but you think, no, wait a minute, no, wait a minute. Did you hear what the preacher said today? Yeah. Will you believe that? I'm going to find out. I'm going to find out. So you begin to ask yourself the question, now, is that true? Now, why is that true? Where does it say in the Bible that that's true? Is it wrong? Why is it wrong? Maybe that's the difference between myself and a lot of people that I've known for years and years. To me, it was a pressing issue. Why is what I heard right? It's not right because of the one who said it. He, I'm sure he's right on target, but I got to know for myself why that's right. I want to know where it says that in the Bible, because when I believe it because it's in this Bible, I don't care who disagrees with me. I got something to stand on. And it's not some preacher, not Apollos, not Paul. But I know what I believe. So I begin to challenge myself. Well, now you say you believe that you're not supposed to take an oath. Well, now, 
Most every Christian does. So why would you not do that? Where does it say not to in the Bible? Well, I don't, I better find out, hadn't I? So you begin to search the scriptures and you find it and you share with somebody. Listen, I know why I do. Oh, I wouldn't know. Yeah, right, right. So, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, the Bible says, yeah, but that's not what it means. Well, what does it mean then? You see, I want to know. I want me and you to see the same thing. I want me and you to agree on the same thing and harmonize and come together in oneness and in unity around the Word of God. We're always going to be different people. I mean, look at me and look at you. We're different, except one thing is common to all of us. That's Christ. The same Jesus that's in you is the same Jesus that's in me. If we love him and follow him, then what he says to me, he says to you, we're going to say the same thing. It's obvious. This is the way it's supposed to be. It's a lifelong labor to teach that because it's so seldom picked up on. People just have this hard-headedness. Christians have this hard-headedness that I see it my way, and, I, and it's so hard to teach people. People grew up in certain religions. They won't change. They don't know what they believe. They don't know why the tenets of their religion say what they say. They just won't give it up. My daddy was a Catholic. He had me running in the Catholic church when I was little. My daddy didn't know why he beat on his chest. He didn't know why they rung those bells and genuflected. And he didn't understand anything about the Bible. He never was taught the Bible. He just followed man. That's heresy. That's heretical in nature. God never put anybody here to just follow whatever you hear because some enlightened person said it. You have an anointing in you that will confirm what you've heard. That's teaching. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in you to teach you what's right. And when you hear what is right, there will be this confirmation here. Your mind, which has to be renewed, might say, oh, man, I don't know about that. But your heart will say, well, you better check it out because that's the truth. And that adjustment, that change over, that walking in newness, that becoming, becoming a new creature in Christ is like two married people becoming one. Takes a while, doesn't it, Duana? Whew. But it happens. It happens because it's a process. And that's why you labor in the Word. That's why you labor in teaching. And that's why you labor in coming. And that's why you deal with your life and you deal with this and you deal with that. Now, in closing, finally, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 28. Then we'll go to the communion. In light of all of this, our togetherness, our oneness, Jesus broke the bread. What did he say with that loaf of bread? I know you know this. He had a loaf of bread. He didn't have little pieces of bread on a tray, did he? Jesus had a loaf. What did he do with the loaf of bread? He said, this piece of bread is one unit. It's me. In a spiritual sense, a figure of speech, this is me. This is what I am and who I am. And here's your piece. He gave it in 12 pieces. He said, now you take and eat that. And you swallow that. Because that loaf of bread is still in this room. But we're all partakers of that one loaf. We're all equal in terms of having the same thing offered to us by the Lord, that one loaf. So in that sense, this communion talks about 
relationships. And when you sit in your little meeting as we started and you won't sit over here with them or you don't care about that one back there, he said, now let me tell you something, verse 20. Let a man examine himself. How do you see each other? How do you see yourself? What's your stand? Is it right or wrong? Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Now, you take a good look at Judge yourself. Discern yourself. Don't compromise yourself. Reach a verdict against everything that's wrong. Judge it. You're wrong, Hamilton. You shouldn't have said that. Well, she shouldn't have said what she said. I'm not dealing with her. I'm dealing with you. You're wrong. Go to her and tell her you're sorry. I'm a man. I can't tell a woman I'm sorry. All right, my way or your way. No, 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 no. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And those walls begin to break down. And you become a different person. And things begin to change because as you examine yourself, you become different. When you see this bigger picture, you begin to see that a man at the communion table, he views himself as God sees him, and in that context, he partakes. I am by invitation a Christian. I didn't choose God. God chose me. Grace came from God. I can't manufacture it. Therefore, by his invitation, he has received me and accepted me into his fellowship. I am better than nobody. All of you are above me. I'm a part of you as you're a part of me. We're together. And in that context, I want to partake of this communion. Folks, get rid of the virus in your life. If you find anything in there that ain't the way it's supposed to be, get rid of it. As he said in verse 33, tarry one for another. Wait one for another. We're going to take communion right now. Everybody's going to get a cup and a piece of bread if you're born again. You hold on to it, and we'll all take together. In a very small way, we'll do what we've been hearing. You examine yourself. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, bless this moment and this time right now. Help us to deal with ourselves. I don't care who we are, where we're from, how old or how young. Help us to be fair in looking at ourselves and each other. In Jesus' name.
Once again, I thank you. Once again. 